Ephesians 1, verses 11 and 12. I will also be using Westminster Shorter Catechism number 7, which is found on page 869 and 870. So if you would go there in the back of the red hymnal, and we'll read that answer together. Westminster Shorter Catechism 7. Wonderful to restart our Sunday school program and catechism today. One of my daughters learned about the brass snake, and she wanted to hear a sermon on that tonight, so she was asking for that this afternoon. I can't do that tonight, but I'll try to work that in soon, sweetheart. I'll do it as quickly as possible. That actually is a I probably could preach that, but it, it would be to abandon the, uh, the plan. And we're preaching about the plan tonight, the decree of God. So, Ephesians 1, verses 11 and 12. Hear God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. In him, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of God endures forever. Amen. Westminster Shorter Catechism 7. Let's read the answer together with one voice. What are the decrees of God? The decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his own will, whereby for his own glory he hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. So this evening we consider... The sovereignty of God, as it uh, focuses, as that doctrine is focused upon this doctrine of the decree of God, what God has decreed. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. But whenever we think of an absolutely sovereign God who has all of history and he, he knows all that is happening, indeed he is fashioning, arranging the events of history unto his own glory. He is predestinating those who will believe unto eternal life. He is is, uh, decreeing all that will happen in the plan of redemption. Uh, We we come up to really what it means to, to believe in a sovereign God because when we say we believe God is sovereign, that is ultimately what it becomes, a God who is in control, and not only in control, but he is executing his plan, and it's not being thwarted. His purposes are not uh, being denied. As we go through the biblical story, the biblical history, uh, oftentimes as we look at the the various episodes, it it seems like history is continuing sort of without someone who's guiding it, but when we look Take a big picture view of all of the scriptures. 
we see the majesty of God to bring about all things according to his decree, according to the counsel of his will. Take tonight's scripture reading. Abraham, in Genesis chapter 22, takes his son, his only son. Did you notice how uh, Genesis 22 reiterates that a couple times? Your son, your only son. Abraham takes his son, his only son, and he, it says, he puts the wood for the sacrifice on Isaac's back. And Isaac, as the, the, the one who will be sacrificed, uh, ascends this mountain with uh, the wood for the sacrifice on his back. The only son of God, uh, many, many, many years later, after Isaac has been spared, he has wood on his back as he ascends the mountain called Calvary. As God's son, God's only son, is put forth as a sacrifice for sinners. The way that God connects those things, and even in a, in a literary way, as he has done so in his word. Take the life of Joseph. Joseph has an up and down life. If there's any, ever a life that you would read in the various episodes and, and connecting one chapter of his life to the next, then you would think, boy, it's, it's, it's so crazy and unconnected and it seems like it's just up and down all of, all of Joseph's life. Sold into slavery, down in Egypt, God gives redemption and, of course, he ends up being the one who saves his brothers. The, uh, the arc of Joseph's life is in many ways similar to Israel's. And so we see God weaving things together. Just like Joseph goes down into Egypt and is sold into slavery. So all of the Israelites follow Joseph in order that they might survive. But eventually they are sold into slavery. And then of course Jesus Christ in order to escape death at the beginning of his life. Where does he go? He goes down into Egypt. Just like Israel, he goes down to Egypt and then he comes back up. And in the Gospel of Matthew, we read, uh, God says, out of Egypt I called my son, referring to when Jesus, Mary, and Joseph come out of Egypt. So Joseph follows that trajectory. Israel follows that trajectory. Jesus follows that trajectory. You may read any one of those episodes and it, it seems random to us. But what's happening is God is executing his decree. He's executing his plan. So let's consider those things together. The first idea tonight is this. An an eternal God must have an eternal decree. An eternal God must have an eternal decree. So we've learned, we know from our own Belgian Confession, Heidelberg Catechism... And then we've seen here in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, we've seen a description of God. What is God? God is a spirit. He's infinite. He's eternal. He's unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. If all of that is true, and it is, God's word tells us that it is so. If those things are true about God, then he must be a God who shapes all of history by a divine decree. This is something that flows out of his attributes. If he's eternal and he never changes and nothing about him ever changes, then there has always been a plan, a plan to create and a plan to save, a plan to redeem and a plan to glorify. Presbyterian minister Francis Beattie 
comments by saying this, the doctrine of the standards, which is this catechism, at this point is the absolute sovereignty of an omniscient, that is a God who knows all things, an omnipotent, that is an all-powerful God, and a holy God. If this fact is rightly understood as it is taught in the scriptures and set forth in these standards, then foreknowledge, foreordination, and predestination, which includes election, all follow as a matter of course. That's, a, that's a, a very fancy way of saying that the only conclusion that we can draw if God is who he is, is that he is absolutely sovereign over all the movements of history. We use the word decree, and really the best word to, to define that or describe that is simply plan. This doesn't mean that God takes away the agency or the will of his creatures. This doesn't mean that all the things that we do are robotic. Right? In our own experience, we know that we're presented with choices. We're presented with various roads down which we may go every day and make small and big decisions each and every day. It's because God has decreed all things, that does not mean that our agency is taken away or the will of the creature is taken away, particularly before the fall of man. This doesn't mean that we believe people are robots. This is God having an intelligible plan and purpose for his creation and that everything that is happening is helping to bring about the end of that plan. So we'll unfold that in a little bit here. But let's just first talk about the nature of this eternal plan. First is that it's eternal from all eternity. What's that we sang tonight in Psalm 148? His decree shall ever stand. This is something that has been always known to God. His plan never changes. When I was a football player, it seems like several lifetimes ago, Football was a sport where the halftime game plan was really, it seemed like, always where the game was decided. One coaching staff made better adjustments than the other, and that usually meant you would win the game. Adjusting a plan is part of human experience. But there are never any adjustments to God's plan. There are never any surprises, never anything that throws him off. Not only is it eternal, but God's decree is wise, it is holy, and it is free. First, it is wise. I've used this illustration before, gave the inspiration to the name for our oldest child. The wisdom of God, Sophia, the wisdom of God. You look at the plan of redemption, you look at all of history, and we will see, one day we will see, the end from the beginning. We will see all that God has done and all that he purposed to do, and we will be awe-stricken by the wisdom of God. And we see something of that when you look at the face of a newborn child. You look at the face, and of course, this is more of an experience for women that I've seen than for men, but women love the, the tiny little nose and the tiny little ears and those little features, and they just get lost in the beauty of it all. And you look at that, and you look at the way that God has brought human life to be and the way that he has formed and fashioned us and knitted us together you say God is wise you look at the features of a newborn child because of the way that one part fits together with another and we will look at all of human history and we will be awestricken by the fact that God is wise 
His plan is holy. Now, this is one of the places where our finite minds have a difficult time grasping this because there's sin in the world. There are things that will constantly break your heart. If we knew, if we knew everything that was going on in the world, we wouldn't be able to process it all. That's one of the reasons why I think having this constant cycle of news is very destructive to uh, who we are spiritually. We know too much now. We're exposed to too much. We take in too much. But God is, is holy and his decree is holy. But nevertheless, we live in a world where there is sin. But we read in God's word that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And so we have to, we must always make sure that we believe and that we make clear that God is not the author of sin. That God does not cause sin. But nevertheless, that does not mean that the sin and the evil and the ugly things of this world go beyond God's ability to control. So see, our finite minds are going to have a tough time fitting all of that together. The same Presbyterian minister, Francis Beatty, says this, However, and wherever sin had its genesis, it was neither in God nor from his decree in any productive or efficient way. God simply permits sin and at the same time bounds and controls it for his wise and holy ends. There's a lot that we could say there, but really we have to make sure that that what we believe is God is not the author of sin, he's not producing sin, he's not causing it, and yet even though sin is a reality, it is not beyond his control. He bounds and controls it for his wise and holy ends. The way that we think about freedom sometimes, and I use this often with our, with our catechism students, the way we think about freedom, God's sovereignty and human freedom, we think about it maybe like a pie chart. And most of us as Calvinists, we say, well, it's probably something like God is 99.99999% sovereign and we're 0.00001% free or something like that. No, God has the whole pie chart of sovereignty and control. And he has, through that, given us the ability to be moral agents, moral creatures. And the fact that we make decisions does not contradict the fact that God is always in control. It's a mystery, but we confess it and we believe it. God's decree is eternal, it's wise, it's holy, it's also unconditioned. There is nothing that happens in all of human history. There are never any factors that bring an outside influence onto God's plan. He's totally independent. He he does not depend on anyone or anything for his wise counsel to be brought about. We make plans to arrive somewhere on time. It's a 30-minute drive, so we leave 35 minutes before we're supposed to be there. But, much to our chagrin, there's 20 minutes worth of traffic, right? There's an outside factor to our planning that has an influence on the execution or the, or the result. But that never happens with God. So let's think about God's decree itself. What are the, the terms that we use when we talk about God's decree? Well, the first thing is... God foreknows, which is simply he knows before. If he is sovereign, 
If he is the creator, he knows all things. He knows everything that has been. He knows all that will be. He doesn't exist within time. He exists outside and above time. God's foreknowledge is perfect. We also read uh, about God foreordaining things, foreordination of things. And that's a stronger term than foreknowledge. But as we read in the Catechism, God has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. So uh, foreordination is what we, what we say when we say that God is arranging all of the events of history. There are other terms that are stronger than that that we'll talk about in just a moment. But I think this is the best way to think about God um, sovereign over all of the events of human history, sin and sinfulness and evil included. And he is able to arrange all things, still being in control, and yet, nevertheless, not the author of sin, but he brings about his plan exactly as he decreed it, exactly as he wanted it. I think the best biblical example we have of this is Genesis chapter 50, where you have the whole life of Joseph. He's lived his whole life, went down into Egypt, is a slave, he was in prison, he arises to second in command in Egypt. He's saving so many lives and also the lives of his brothers. And he says this as he welcomes his brothers. They come back. They fall down before him. They realize who he is. Genesis 50. They say, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? In other words, I'm not going to harm you. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. The things that you did, you intended them for evil, but God intended it for good. He was able to be arranging all the things that you were doing, the evil sin that you committed against me. God was always in control, and he was able to arrange it in such a way that his plan was perfectly brought about. It did not surprise him. It did not go beyond his ability to control, and yet God only does that which is good, for he is good. For He foreordains all things. But we also read that God predestines things. He predestined things. And that is stronger than foreordaining. That's not just the arranging of all things. To to predestine things is is very meticulously uh, limiting the boundaries of something. So I was trying to think of how can I say that this, uh, how can I create some sort of illustration? So this will fall apart because it's, it's human action and, and not divine at all. So it's not a perfect illustration. But when I take my son, my one-year-old son, into the basement, if I don't put up the gate on the stairs, he'll climb up the stairs, and of course he'll fall down because he's not that good on the stairs yet. So I put this gate on the stairs. I'm doing something very direct and very meticulous, right, to predestine, in a sense, That he's not going to get on the stairs, he's not going to to fall down. When we talk about God's predestination, that's a stronger term that we generally reserve for what God does in redemption. That is his saving, his uh, lining up and planning out all of the steps of redemption exactly to a T so that we might be saved. So Acts 4, 27 to 28 We read this, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, Herod, Pontius Pilate, 
along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. All that happened in, in the life of Christ, in salvation, God predestined it. Now that doesn't mean when he foreordains he's less in control. It's just that the Bible uses language to have a stronger association with how God was meticulously planning out all of the steps of salvation. And then, of course, God predestines certain people to salvation from all eternity. That is what he does, and we read about it in many places in Scripture. And to that, we can attach the term predestination. We can attach the term election or the elect. The elect is a word that's designated for those who become the saved people of God. That is, God plucks out for his own purposes, for his own glory, those whom he would save. And there's, there's, a, there's an affection, a love that's bound up with the idea of election. If you know Christ, God has plucked you out of your sin. He has brought you to himself. He has brought you into uh, a place of blessedness and salvation. All of that is to illustrate that when we're talking about salvation and we're talking about God's choosing of people to, to, to know him and to be saved in Christ and others who do not know Christ and are ultimately destined for condemnation, there's a different way that we talk about that. So some people use the word reprobation right, or e- eternally uh, uh, predestined for condemnation. And really the way the Bible presents that to us is that uh, since all humanity is sinful and when we think about God has predestined some to salvation and he's plucked them out, when we talk about God leaving some in their sin, one of the best ways we can talk about that is that he passes over many. He leaves them in their sin. So many people have a problem with Calvinism because they say, well, you guys think that God is is sort of looking at uh, sort of a bare humanity before all time and just sort of saying, you're going to heaven and you're going to hell. That's not the way the Bible presents it to us. God plucks some out of their sin, many, and uh, when we get to heaven someday, I believe that there will be many, 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 a multitude well beyond our ability to count. And others he passes over. He leaves them in their sin. The Westminster Confession of Faith puts it this way. The rest of mankind, that is those who are not in Christ, God was pleased according to the counsel of his will, whereby he extends or withholds mercy as he pleases for the glory of his sovereign power to pass by and to ordain them to dishonor, right, and wrath for their sins. So he's foreordaining different kind of language there. But if God allowed sin, we must ask why. If God, and that always comes upon us as those who believe in a sovereign God, right? There's so much evil in the world. There's so much difficulty. There's so much pain. Why? Why did God allow it? Why does he allow these things to happen? Well, we can't offer a perfect answer, but here are some of the things that we can say. Going to the scriptures, saying, why is there sin in the world? Why is there evil? Why is there suffering? Well, here are some answers. The first is this, that God would be glorified in redemption. As you look at all of human life, 
from the fall from Genesis 3 to today. When God seems most glorified in human experience is when he is known in redemption. And I brought this up a couple of weeks ago, but all of the worship scenes in heaven, what do they focus on? They focus on Christ, the lamb who was slain. They focus on the fact that Jesus Christ spilled his blood to wash us and cleanse us from our sin. So first, God is glorified in redemption. He's glorified when he saves sinners. That's one reason. The second is this, that God would be worshipped and adored for his long-suffering and his patience. We see that God is a patient God, that he's a long-suffering God, that he is slow to anger. And we know that he is because of the kinds of people that he saves. He saves us. He's patient with us. He's patient with others who are converted to Christ later in life. The Apostle Paul brings this up. He was a persecutor of the church. He was killing Christians. And he says this, First Timothy chapter 1, I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example of those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And God receives glory because he is patient. Third, that God might be honored and glorified by the faith and repentance of his people and their walking humbly with him. All of us, as sinners saved by grace, as those who are made new in Christ, given the Holy Spirit, we become part of that picture. Honored, uh, God is honored and glorified by those who freely admit that without him we would be lost. Who freely admit that without God's grace and without his help, we would not be able to live in any way that comes close to pleasing him. We would not be able to hear that verdict of, of not guilty and righteous. We would not receive that gift of eternal life. And because of that, we walk humbly. And our lives become a testament to the power and the grace of God. And then last, and here's one that's difficult for many to accept, but we have to accept it from the scriptures, believe it, and cling to it. That God would be glorified in the exercise of his justice when he judges the wicked. On the last day, on the judgment day. Whatever happens and however God executes it all, it will be undeniable that he has done exactly that which is right and good and wise and holy. He will be glorified in the exercise of his justice just as he will be glorified in the exercise of his grace. So, as we move through this, what is the purpose of God's decree? We've already mentioned it. It's to manifest his glory. Creation and redemption, it doesn't enhance God's glory at all. It doesn't make him more glorious, but it broadcasts his glory. He goes public with his glory in a sense. The, uh, The purpose of God's decree is to manifest his glory and it's also for the good of man. It's for the good of man in a couple ways. First, for the good of man in that we are saved through God's decree. He has decreed to save many. And also that we realize in the triune God of Scripture, we find our absolute source of joy and unending happiness. Without God and without being joined to him in covenant, we would be lost and we would never live a fulfilled life. 
So that's the purpose of God's decree. But what is the pinnacle of God's decree? The pinnacle of God's decree. What, why has human history continued? Right? Genesis 3, Adam falls, Adam rebels. Why didn't God exercise judgment on Adam and Eve and start over? The only reason that human history continued from the fall was so that God would save in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the foundational sole reason for the continuation of human history, whether before he came or after he came. After the last person that God has predestined to believe in Jesus Christ comes into the fullness of God's people, that will be when Jesus Christ returns. That will be when he makes his glorious return. If not for salvation, human history would have no reason to continue. And that's what Paul is saying to us in Ephesians chapter 1, that glorious long sentence in Ephesians chapter 1. And we just read two verses at the beginning of tonight. It says, in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything, not just uh, the faith of saved people, but works out everything, everything in all of history in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. So when we think about predestination, we say, It's for God's own good pleasure. It pleases him. That's why he has done it. Why has he chosen some to salvation? Why has he chosen us in Christ to salvation? It pleases him. Ephesians 1 verse 5. He predestined us to be adopted as his sons in accordance with his pleasure. Verse 9. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ. It's for his good pleasure And it's for uh, the mission of God that we become those who broadcast his glory. In order that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. James chapter 1 says, God brought us forth in the exercise of his will by the word of truth. So that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his creatures. There's a, a farmer maybe who brings in those choice first fruits or something that he might grow and some farmers will even bring some of those choice fruits a pumpkin perhaps to the fair you think of it that way God we are the ones that God brings to the fair he puts his people on display in the world and says this is what I have done and on judgment day we will be put forth as they look at what God has done by his grace he has saved us he has forgiven us he has made us new And he made us live a new life by the power of the Holy Spirit. A couple of applications as we close. First is this. God has ordained not only the ends, but also the means of our salvation. When God predestines someone to faith in Christ, it's not just, okay, a choice that they'll believe and then one day they do. No, everything in their entire life, is shaped around God bringing forth true faith in Christ and keeping them amongst his people so that at the end of life they are exactly whom God has purposed them to be. This ought to make us stand in awe 
of God, to humbly receive his grace, to think about the fact that all of human history is moving in such a way that all those who believe would have faith in Christ. Think about all of the things in your life that God has woven together that you would be counted among those who have faith in Christ. That's why he's doing all that he's doing in your life. It makes you stand in awe of him. It makes you praise him to think that all that he has done, he has done to give you salvation if you know Christ by faith. The second application is this. We ascribe nothing to chance. There is no, there's no luck. There's no chance in our universe. Proverbs 16.33. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. And so if that is true, two things that we must know if we ascribe nothing to chance. The first is this. We must learn to see God's hand in all the afflictions which befall us things that we don't like, the things that we don't enjoy. We must learn to see God's hand in all of our afflictions. God works in everything. He works in our suffering. God works in our sins and failures. All of the things, all the times that we mess up and we stumble and fall, God is still at work in our life. In some mysterious way, he's weaving all of those things together for the best result of his glory and our good. He works in everything to bring the greatest result of his glory and our good. And then lastly, you'll notice the language from our own uh, beloved catechism. We must be thankful, if that is true, if nothing is ascribed to chance, and we must learn to see God's affliction, or God's hand in all the afflictions which befall us. We must be thankful when things go well and patient when things go against us. We must be thankful when things go well. What a great blessing God has given us when he gives us good times and easy times. And we must be patient when things go against us because we can't see all that he's doing. Think about Joseph's life. The many times he would have been tempted to think one thing or to cut off his belief in God's plan in his life. We must be patient when things go against us because we know and we believe. It comes down to what you believe about God. Do you believe that he is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable? If you do, then the idea of a decree, of a plan, of a God who's always in control, and all of that follows as a matter of course. So may we believe it, and may we live in light of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these things. And we, uh, these truths, these glorious truths, and we ask that you would be pleased uh, to help us understand. We, we, we believe. We ask that you would help our unbelief. We know that faith is such an important component of this, that we're called to, to simply uh, believe and trust you as, as you work out your purposes and you work out uh, all that you're doing in our lives. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name.